Well, in case you haven't noticed, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here. Um, that's because at High Point, yeah, it's okay. I love Christmas. At High Point, we waste no time going from Thanksgiving into the Christmas season, and why not? Because this is the time when we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And honestly, I can't think of anything more important to celebrate than Christmas. And uh, today I am going to begin a Christmas series and we're titling it, Why the Nativity? There it is. And uh, my inspiration for this sermon series comes from a little book written by Dr. David Jeremiah with the same title. Now, if you go to the bookstore, you're not gonna find this. This is not a new book. This is, a, this is an old book, but it was one that was recommended to me by a friend, and it's a book that asks important questions uh, that people who don't fully understand who Jesus is or what he's all about need answers to. And so my purpose for this series is to find answers to these questions that will remind all of us once again of the significance of the Christ of Christmas. Next week, we will find answers to these questions. Why did Jesus come in the manner in which he did? Why would the Messiah come at that point in history? Why would he come to a little town like Bethlehem and be born in a filthy stable? Then on December 11th, we're gonna look for answers to these questions. Why must Jesus come again? And what do we need to know about his future coming? And how should it change the way that we live today? Then on December 18th, our focus will be on understanding why Jesus came to the people he did, why Mary and Joseph, why the shepherds, why the wise men, and then of course on Christmas Day, yes, we will have church on Christmas Day. Yeah. We're gonna have a Christmas Eve service at five o'clock and we'll be right back here on Sunday morning and I want you to come. Open your presents Christmas Eve night, okay? Break the rules and, 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 and get here. You know, we, we need to celebrate Christ's birth on the date that it happens, and I hope you will all come on Christmas morning. I know it'll be real easy to get in your PJs and get a hot cup of coffee and watch it online, but we want you to come here. Anyway, that was my plug. Christmas Day, we're gonna answer, why did Jesus, almighty God in the flesh, why did he come as a baby? But today, as a foundation for the answers to all these other questions, our focus today is going to be, why did Jesus come in the first place? Now I ask, can I get the lights above me on, fellas? You know, as a Christian, you might uh, think that the answer to that question is, is rather obvious. And maybe you're even, even wondering why I would put, or put together a sermon answering this particular question. Well, simply put, let me just say this, during this Christmas season, you may be asked this question out there in your own personal mission field. When a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a relative might ask you to explain why you celebrate the birth of, of this particular baby. And when you are asked, you need to be ready, as the scripture says in 1 Peter, to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you. That's scriptural. This Christmas, you need to be prepared to use any God-ordained opportunity to explain why Jesus coming to this earth 
is something that should not be overlooked. You need to be able to articulate how and why this historic event changed the world. More importantly, you need to explain how it has changed your own life. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, the scriptures are gonna be up on the screen to each side of me for you to follow along. Matthew chapter one, I'll be reading uh, uh, from the NIV version. We'll be uh, reading verses 18 through 21. Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 21. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after she, he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want to follow that up by reading some red letter words spoken by the now grown up Jesus during his earthly ministry prior to his crucifixion in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You know, two years ago in 2020, whenever you turned on the news, the entire broadcast was dedicated almost exclusively to the COVID pandemic. We all understand that when something big happens, the press will cover every little detail ad nauseum, right? Well, if Fox News and CNN had been on the air back in 1809, I'm sure that their evening news broadcasts would have concentrated on Austria. Why is that? Because that's where the attention of the entire world was on that particular year. Everyone was focused on news about Napoleon Bonaparte as he swept across uh, helpless hamlets just like California wildfires. In 1809, the most significant news was of the battlefield exploits of this diminutive dictator from France, and it filled all of the newspapers. So in 1809, no one cared about anything else, least of all the babies that were born that year. After all, babies are born every single day, right? There's nothing really newsworthy at all about the birth of a child, or is there? Of course there is. And in 1809, they have great proof of this principle because a, a veritable host of, of world changers and thinkers and statesmen drew their first breath that same year. Here's a few examples. In that year, 1809, the great poet Alfred Lord Tennyson began his life in Lincolnshire. Charles Darwin was also born that year and we're still reeling from his contributions to science this very day. Another baby who became one of the most famous Supreme Court justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes, was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And a few miles away in Boston, Edgar Allan Poe started his brief and tragic life. And here's one more. In a rugged cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky, 
our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, was born. And that and much more happened in 1809, but nobody really cared. Because in everybody's mind, the destiny of the world was being shaped on the battlefield in Austria, or was it? Charles Swindoll writes this, only a handful of history buffs today could name even one of Napoleon's Austrian campaigns. But who can measure the impact of these other lives? What appeared to be super significant to the world has proven to be no more exciting than a Sunday afternoon yawn. What seemed at the time to be totally significant was in fact the genesis of an era. Now let's take this same principle a little bit deeper by turning back the clock 18 centuries. It was a pivotal year when the birth of one particular baby led mankind to start counting centuries forward instead of backward. The people who lived that year didn't care much about the birth of any baby any more than they did in 1809. It just was not their focus. At that time, who would have cared about the birth of a baby while the world was watching the Roman Empire and all of its splendor? This was the nation with iron legs, as symbolized in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he, he, he shared with Daniel in the Old Testament. It was a nation whose armies marched across the world, conquering as they went, and no one could stand in their way. Because of the unstoppable power of the legions of Rome, the empire had grown until it covered most of the known world at that time. And this nation was as vicious as they were vast. There was political intrigue. There was racial tensions, increased immorality, and, uh, and world-changing power from this enormous military might, something that the world had probably not seen before. It's what occupied everybody's attention. It's what occupied everybody's conversation. That year, Rome was the focus of the news. In Israel, well, just like many other nations, it existed under the crushing boot of the Roman Empire. No one could have given that backward or backwater region of the world a second thought. No, because all eyes were on the West, where a cynical Caesar Augustus demanded a, cens a census in order to determine the measurement by which he would increase the taxes. So with his census in the news, who would have been interested in a peasant couple making an 80-mile-long trip from Nazareth with a bunch of the other census travelers? What could be possibly more important that year than Caesar's decisions going on in Rome? Who cared yet about another Jewish baby being born, especially one that was born in the little town of Bethlehem? Well, you and I know the answer to that question, don't we? Quoting Chuck Swindoll once again, he writes, without realizing it, mighty Augustus was only an errand boy for the fulfillment of Micah's prediction, a pawn in the hand of Jehovah, a piece of lint on the pages of prophecy. While Rome was busy making history, God arrived. He pitched his fleshly tent in silence on straw, in a stable, under a star. The world didn't even notice. 
Reeling from the wake of Alexander the Great, Herod the Great, Augustus the Great, the world overlooked Mary's little lamb. It still does. So this Christmas season, when the world and most people that you know overlook Jesus' birth, I want us to strive to counter that mindset here at High Point. And I want to do so by reminding ourselves why, among all of the events that have filled the pages of history, why this particular birth was the most newsworthy event of all time. So let's get started. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why was he born? And I think it's important to note our first question in this series is one of the first questions Jesus himself was asked. And I say that because at least on 13 different occasions in the Gospels, we find him using that explanatory phrase, I have come. In John 5, 43, he said, I have come in my Father's name. In John 6, 38, he said, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. In John 12, 46, he said, I have come as a light so that no one who believes, so that one who, no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. Sorry, I kind of tore that up. As a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Even as a little boy in the temple, Jesus addresses his parents, Mary and Joseph's understanding of why he came when he said this in Luke 2.49. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I could go on and on. But this phrase, I have come, and other variations of the same one, shows that Jesus had a sense of mission, and it was an obvious sense of mission. Jesus knew there was a reason for him to have come into our world. And I want you to think about this. People who live on earth, we never speak of coming to this world, because for you and I, this world is is our only known home. So when Jesus uses this phrase, he was using the language of a guest, really, when you think about it. He was talking like an ambassador would who was on a short trip with a very important assignment to accomplish. He was speaking like someone from somewhere else who had come into our world with some kind of a purpose, who had an important job to do. So back to our question, what was his job? What was Jesus' assignment? What was his father's business that he was going about? And why did he come? There are several ways I could answer these questions, and we're gonna touch on those other ones in the weeks to come. But this morning, I wanna deal with three of the main reasons as to why Jesus came here on that first Christmas. Number one, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, makes this very clear. It says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, the Greek word used here for destroy literally means to break or to dissolve. And I think it's interesting that it is paired that way with the word devil, because that particular designation for our adversary literally means one who shatters. You put all that together, 
And it says that Jesus came to break the works of the one who breaks. He came to shatter the works of the one who shatters. And this is indeed world-changing news, ladies and gentlemen, because from the beginning of time, Satan has made it his goal to shatter lives by pushing people further and further away from God. His evil work started with the first two human beings that ever existed, and it has continued on down through the millennia. He does his level best to entice people like you and me to embrace attitudes and behaviors that bring us nothing but pain and heartache. Satan constantly and cleverly whispers in your and my ear things that cause us to fear, things that entice us to do evil. And I think you know what I'm talking about because we all know what it's like to be a victim of the devil's work. He is our number one enemy. And this is what 1 Peter 5.8 says about him. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Every one of us has felt his filthy paws in our life. All of us have gone astray. All of us have yielded to his temptations in ways that have shattered some of our hopes and some of our dreams. As I said, when Jesus was born, however, he came into this world to foil the devil's schemes. He came to defeat this bully that every one of us has had to deal with. And because Jesus came to do that, you and I can have a totally different outlook on life. Because of Jesus coming, Satan's desire for our lives need not be accomplished anymore. Martin Luther put it this way in this great hymn he wrote, the prince of darkness grim, we, trem we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what's that one little word? It's Jesus. God in the flesh come to the earth. Our heavenly father did not want Satan the enemy of our souls to destroy or thwart or abort his purposes, his plans, and his desires for your and my life. So he sent Jesus, and he sent him to rescue us from the works of the enemy, to thwart uh, his plan, to shatter our lives, to shatter our homes, and to shatter our families. Galatians 2.15 talks about this victory Jesus came to win on our behalf when it says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, meaning uh, that may mean Satan, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know, one of my favorite scenes in that film, The Passion of the Christ, is at the beginning when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before his arrest. I don't know if you remember that really misty, dark scene or not, but Satan is crouched nearby while Jesus is praying and he is agonizing over the cross. And as he prays, Satan says things like, do you really believe that, no one, no, that one man can bear the full burden of sin? Of course not. Besides, saving their souls is too costly. 
And then a snake comes slithering out of Satan's robe, crawling around the ground toward Jesus. And it's at that moment that Jesus prays his prayer of victory. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. And he stands up and he literally begins to walk toward the cross. But as he does, he looks down and he stomps on that snake and he crushes his head with his heel. And I think this isn't just a great interpretation of God's promise to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's also a wonderful symbol of what Jesus came to do for you and me. Jesus came, amen, yeah. Jesus came to break the works of the one who breaks. And because of Jesus coming, folks, because of what he did on the cross, because of that empty tomb, we can have the power to say no to Satan, to say no to his evil schemes. Thanks to Jesus' birth, Satan's work in our life can be destroyed. But that's not the only reason he came. Number two, Jesus came to give our lives meaning and purpose. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier in John 10, 10? He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now the Greek word used here for life is not bios, which means being alive as a feeling, breathing creature. No, the word that John uses here is zoe, which is stronger word, and it signifies an active, energetic, full of life kind of a person. John was saying that the life that Jesus came to give us was an uncommonly uh, abundant life. In John 1.4, he writes, in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus was, or or excuse me, John was telling us that Jesus came to make possible the kind of life that we all yearn for. And let's be honest, we always seem to yearn for more in this life. We have learned, just like Solomon, that on our own, the the best of life is nothing but chasing the wind. That's what he says in the scriptures. Our professions, our career success, our fame and fortune and our investments, they all look great. But you know what? Every one of them leaves us feeling empty. Everything that this world has to offer leaves us hungry and thirsty for something more satisfying. And it's precisely that particular kind of hunger and thirst is the second reason that Jesus came. He came to make it possible for you and me to live a life that is rich to live a life that is full. He came to show us how to really live. Kenneth Eaton writes, Jesus Christ is the great animator, like a skillful physician coaxing a patient back from the abyss of death, refusing to let him slip away into oblivion, giving him new heart and new hope, so Christ imparts new vitality into those whose lives he touches. You know what I'm talking about here? The life that is lived without Jesus, folks, is more like death than it is life because it lacks a relationship with the creator, the one who knows you and I better than anyone else who will always lead you into the paths that are best for you. And and this is world-changing news because 
As I said, all people long for an abundance that can only come from a life of meaning and a life of purpose. And that can only come from God. We all have this inborn need to spend our days doing things uh, of, of eternal significance. And Jesus alone, he makes that possible for us. In short, Jesus invites us to a life that makes sense. Not the kind of life that is a wasted life. Through his teaching, Jesus, he clearly shows us the only workable strategy for living a happy and a fulfilling life in this fallen world. And here it is. Jesus said that the, the way to do this is to embrace an unselfish love for others instead of the inevitable emptiness that comes from self-seeking and self-serving. Jesus taught us that when we follow his example and when we devote our lives to serving one another, our life becomes more full. It becomes much more satisfying. And ever since his birth, billions of people have followed his teachings on this very subject, relying on the indwelling of his spirit and power. They have lived life in such a way and they have found it to be the only way of true joy and true peace and the abundance that he promises us. They have found that it is really more blessed to give than it is to get. Because when your focus is on serving other people, when your focus is on blessing other people ahead of yourself, what happens is God showers you with blessings that you would never have received any other way because of what you're doing by blessing other people. You remember Jesus' words from Mark 8, 35, he said this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Let me read you the Living Bible translation of this because I think you'll like it as much as I did. If you insist on saving your life, you will lose it. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. John Ortberg shares a story of a young man known as Johnny the Bagger. Johnny was 19 with Down syndrome and he worked at a local grocery store bagging groceries. One day he went to a training event that his store had sponsored. It was led by a motivational speaker by the name of Barbara Glanz. And Ms. Glanz spoke about how people can make a real difference in the lives of others through acts of service. She, she described how, very, how, how that every interaction with another person is a chance to create a memory. It's a chance to bless someone else's life. Well, this inspired Johnny. And here's an excerpt from Ortberg's, Ortberg's book that shows where that inspiration led. He writes, Johnny decided that every night when he came home from work, he would find a thought for the day for his next shift, something like a Christian phrase or a verse of scripture. It would be something positive, some reminder of how good it was to be alive or how much people matter or how many gifts we are surrounded by. Every night his dad would help him enter the next day's saying six times on a page on the computer, then Johnny would print 50 pages. Next he would take out a pair of scissors and carefully cut 300 copies and sign every single one. The following day, Johnny would put the stack of pages next to him while he worked. Each time he finished bagging someone's groceries, 
he would put his saying on the top of the last bag. Then he would stop what he was doing, look the person straight in the eye and say, I've got a great saying in your bag. I hope it helps you to have a good day. Thanks for coming. A month later, the store manager called Miss Glance and said, you won't believe what's happened here. I was making my rounds, and when I got up to the cashiers, the line at Johnny's checkout was three times longer than anyone else's. It went all the way down the frozen food aisle. The manager said she got on the loudspeaker to get more checkout lines open, but he couldn't get any of the customers to move. They said things like, that's okay, we'll wait. We want to be in Johnny's line. One woman came up to the manager and said, I used to shop at your store only once a week. Now I come in every time I walk by. I want to get Johnny's thought for the day. Johnny is doing more than filling bags with groceries. He's selflessly filling lives with hope. There is a reason Johnny's lines are three times longer than anyone else's. Our souls need to be fed just as our bodies do. Bodies are fed by protein and carbs. Souls are fed by words. Of course, what makes the words on the paper mean so much is who they came from. Words alone can come from fortune cookies. When people get them from Johnny, they are reminded of the beauty of one person forgetting his own limitations and seeking to make his life a blessing to someone else. By the way, a few months later, the manager called Barbara once again to tell her Johnny was transforming the whole store. He told her that inspired by Johnny's selflessness, when the floral department had a broken flower or unused corsage, they used to throw it away. Now they go out into the aisles, find an elderly woman or a little girl and pin it on her. The butchers started putting ribbons on the cuts of meat they wrap up for their customers and the people who gather the shopping carts are trying to make sure the carts actually work. Now think about that for a moment. Can you imagine how blessed Johnny felt knowing the kind of difference that he was making in other people's lives? Think of how abundant his life became. And think of this, if Johnny can bless an entire grocery store by doing what he did bagging groceries, then what or who could you bless if you let Jesus empower you to live a life of selfless service to other people. One reason that Jesus came was to help us experience the kind of abundant life that comes from embracing this Christ-like attitude. Jesus can change your workplace into a mission field. Jesus can help you to see people's true needs below the surface. He can give you the words to share and the actions that you need to, to act upon in order to meet their needs. When you rely on him and you serve other people in this way, you will experience an incredible sense of fulfillment. Because of Jesus' birth, you and I can live a life, folks, of eternal significance. So let me review, why did Jesus come? Number one, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Number two, he came to make it possible for us to live abundant lives, but I've saved the best for last, and this is the most important one. The main reason Jesus came was to save us from our sin. In Matthew 121, the angel said that his name foretold. 
his main mission. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You know, when you look back on your life and the many different wounds that you've had to grapple with, and I'm not talking about physical wounds here, I'm talking about those emotional wounds, those wounds that linger, those wounds that remind you of hurt and of pain. As we look at those wounds, there's something that, that every one of us has to remember, that the basis or prime cause of all of our wounds is sin. It is sin. Sin is the most profound wound of them all. And furthermore, we are all bent. We're all born with a bent, should I say, towards sin. The scriptures make this eminently clear. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Job 5, 7 says, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Galatians 5, 19 and through 21 expounds on this when speaking about our flesh and our natural inclinations. It says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 3.23 of course tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, the first part of that verse says there is no one righteous, not even one. I could quote scripture like this all day long and each one of them would drive this painful point home even further. We are fallen and we are flawed creatures who are at odds with our creator and who are at odds with each other a good amount of our time. So the greatest enemy that we face, folks, is not Satan. It's ourselves. Why? Because as sinners, we have this irresistible force inside of us that pulls us towards sin. We know that it's there, but on our own, we're incapable of doing anything about it. And it always leads us to destruction. So this is where we need help. We are fallen and we are falling. It's like what that old hymn said, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more, but the Savior. That's why Christmas is something for us to celebrate. Because Jesus was born to save us from this sinking. He said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I completely understand that, that that phrase, came to save what was lost, may seem outdated to some of you. But it isn't. Because that's what we all are without Jesus. We're lost. That old-fashioned phrase is still relevant today because it underscores the urgency that surrounded Jesus' mission then and to this very day. He came to more than save us. He came to rescue us. I'm reminded of the story of Michael Ower, 
a homeless young man from the inner city of Memphis, Tennessee. Michael was one of 13 children. He did not know his father because his father was murdered when he was a child and his mom was addicted to crack cocaine. And all of this tragedy put Michael into the foster care system. And Michael bounced from one home to another until he turned six years of age. And it was then that he decided he would start to live life out on the streets at six years of age to fend for himself and to sleep anywhere he felt he might be able to be safe and sleeping. A friend's father arranged so that Michael could attend the Briarcrest Christian Academy. But due to the many years that he was out on the street, Michael fell far behind his peers when it came to his education and his studies. Plus, as I said, Michael had nowhere to live and the only clothes that he had were a t-shirt and cut off shorts that he always wore plus one extra t-shirt that he carried around with him in a little plastic bag. At night, he'd wash his shirt in a sink at a laundromat, and he'd toss his wet shirt into someone else's dryer when they weren't looking. He ate scavenged food. He slept in the school gym. It was the only warm place he knew of. One cold winter night, the Toy family, whose children attended the same school, saw Michael walking down the street in the winter in cutoffs and a t-shirt. They said he looked pitiful standing out there in the cold and it was obvious that he needed rescuing. So they invited him into their home. He spent Thanksgiving with them. He slept on their couch one night, then two nights, and before long, he became like part of the family. They bought him clothes, and they gave him a room where he could sleep on his own bed, and they hired a tutor to help him with his lessons. They eventually adopted him as their son, and he started to play football in high school, and he was so good at it that he got a full-ride scholarship to Ole Miss. Michael was an All-American while playing for the Rebels, and he was drafted by the Baltimore Ravens and played eight years in the NFL. It's amazing how his life was turned around. Scott, would you guys come forward and help me to close this down? Michael says that he came from a neighborhood where 0% made it out. His peers either died in drug or gang violence or just continued to live their life in abject poverty. So if anyone needed saving, it was Michael Oher. And you know, this is a very real and a relatable picture of what Jesus did for me. Like Michael, I was lost and I needed rescuing. On my own merits, I was destitute. My situation as a fallen and falling human being was literally hopeless. I needed saving and I needed rescuing. And that's what Jesus did for me. He came and he died on the cross for my sin 
and I asked him to forgive me of my sin and I, and I gave him lordship over my life and God adopted me as one of his own. And today, because of that decision, the most important decision that I have ever made in my life, my life has meaning and it has purpose and I can live with joy in knowing that Jesus is my savior. Does that mean that every day is without its challenges? Oh, far from it. I have challenges just like you do. But now when challenges arrive, arise, I have someone in my life who walks with me through them and understands everything below the surface. He knows what's going on behind the scenes, things that we in our own intellect do not know. And I know that he guides and he directs my steps and he empowers me to do things that on my own, I would be totally incapable of doing. I have Jesus, folks, and what a blessing that is. So I spent the last 30 minutes or so trying to answer a very important question. But in closing, I want you to spend a few moments answering one as well. And here it is. To use another old-fashioned phrase, are you saved? Have you received salvation through Christ Jesus? Or like I once was, are you lost and in need of a savior, in need of someone to rescue you? If your an honest answer to this all-important question is yes, then I have literally world-changing news for you. Jesus Christ, God's only son, came into this world with the express purpose of seeking you out and saving you so that he could be your Lord and he could be your savior. And all that's lacking for you to be rescued and to be forgiven and to be cleansed of your sin is for you to use your God-given free will and invite him in to save you. Jesus does not force himself on anyone. He is a perfect gentleman. He comes by invitation. So all you need to do is to ask him, to admit to him that on your own, you are lost and you are in need of a savior and you are in need of forgiveness. The scripture says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I encourage you today to commit to following Jesus as Savior and Lord, and I promise you something, that this will be the best Christmas that you have ever had in your entire existence, because for once, you will be free. You will be free from sin. You will be free from the guilt that accompanies your sin, free to live a new kind of a life, one that is empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, if that question doesn't apply to you, then here's the second one that might. Would you say that your life is rich, a rich and fulfilling one? Or is it empty, like Solomon described, as chasing wind? If your answer is more of the latter part of that question than the former, then I have world-changing news for you as well. If as a Christian, you begin to take your focus onto others, if you will follow Jesus' command to deny yourself, your entire life 
will change. The more you live a selfless kind of life as a Christ follower, the more excited you will be to get out of bed every single morning. If that describes your life, then why not make a commitment today to change the way you live? Remember, changing lives is one of the reasons that Christ came. I'd like you all to stand to your feet if you would. I've asked the worship team to come up and lead us in the song, Change My Heart, Oh God. As we think, sing this song, I want you to think about what God needs to rescue you from or what he needs to change in you, in your heart. Christmas is, is the most exceptional time to deal with heart issues because this is one time of the year where it seems like all of us are, are, are more open than ever before. Because even though the world has changed its focus on what Christmas is all about, it will always be about the birth of Jesus. It will always be about the one who brings salvation. So if you need salvation today, you can pray a very, very simple prayer. Acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Acknowledge that he can forgive you of your sin and then ask him to forgive you of your sin. Invite him to be the Lord of your life. You can do that while we sing, or while we're singing, you can come down and kneel at this altar and receive Jesus, it's up to you. And if you realize this morning that maybe you are living more for yourself and less for others, God can change your heart. Just like this song we're about to sing says, ask him for the ability to see and to recognize those who are in need and ask him to give you the courage to reach out and serve other people in some kind of a way. So you can also either come down to this altar as we sing, or you can pray from your seat. Ask God to change your heart in this area. Maybe you're facing some challenges as we enter into this Christmas season. Well, this altar is a great place for you to meet Jesus and to dump that concern and leave it here at the altar in Jesus' capable hands and walk away from it. The important thing for you to do is whatever need you have is turn it over. Turn them over and ask for God's presence and God's strength to help you to deal with them in a God-honoring way. Whatever it is that you need help with this morning from our Lord and Savior, I encourage you to reach out to him today because remember, it is through Jesus where the abundant life that his pro he promises comes from. It comes from no other way. So while the worship team sings, you can either come to this altar or you can pray there from your seat while we seek Jesus in singing this song together. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, Change my heart, oh God. 
potter lord you are the potter i am the clay hold me and make me hold me continue to pray. I'd like you to bow your heads with me. Precious Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that this holiday we're about to celebrate is about you. It's about a loving Father who cared enough for his people to provide a way of salvation, a way of reconciliation, a way for us to live an abundant kind of a life eternal life, Father, that when our time here on this earth is past, we'll be in your presence in a place where there's no crying, no tears, no, no pain, just a place of perfect peace. And we thank you for that promise, Father. Thank you for coming and rescuing me. Thank you for coming and rescuing so many of us in this room from the sin that we were in and the problems that we were encountering. God, you are so faithful and we thank you. Father, as we enter into this Christmas season, I, I pray for my church family, for every one of us, Lord, that 
we would be focused on others and not on ourselves, that we would look for ways where we can impact somebody's life by simply giving them a smile, having a kind word, or better yet, inviting them to church, one of our services, invite them to our concerts, something to get them out of their home and surrounded by people who love you, Lord, and that they would sense the Spirit of God in the presence of all that are surrounding them. So God, use us this Christmas. Let this not just be a, a happy holiday, which is what it is, and we love it, and we adore you, Father, and we love you, and we're thankful for you, but make it a time where we want others to experience that same joy that we have, and I pray that you would use us in a very special way. We go our separate ways today, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing us, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Let those conversations be designed to build people up and not to tear them down. And Father, let us shine brightly in this dark world, the, the bright, shining light of your love to those we come into contact with. And Father, I pray that you give us a divine appointment this week, each one of us. Let someone cross our path that we can share your goodness with, that we can give them a selfless kind of attention and love that they deserve. And until we meet together again, Father, and worship you, I pray that you'll keep us safe from sickness and disease, keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us until we gather together as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. We go our way today, Father, I pray that we would go in love. That's what you've commanded of us. Let us be uh, love, loving people who shed light on every circumstance. And I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen.